Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, and we're recording today here in Amiskwichiwa Skygan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta. And folks, it is an extremely dark time here in North America. For the past week or so, police in the United States have continued to escalate violence against peaceful protests that erupted after Minneapolis police murdered an unarmed black man named George Floyd by kneeling on his throat and neck until he died. Uh, police forces in major American cities across the United States have continued to commit police brutality at these anti-police brutality protest protests. Uh, unarmed protesters have been shot to death. Children have been maced. Police cars are driving into crowds of people at high speeds with frightening regularity. Armed white supremacist vigilante groups are roaming the streets with the tacit approval of law enforcement. And today on the pod, we want to make this clear that this is not just an American problem, that uh, police in Canada are just as brutal and violent against black and brown bodies as they are in the United States. But we also want to talk about what we can do about it. Solutions that like only crusty anarchists and radicals were talking about just a few years ago are now entering the mainstream. Defunding and disarming the police and abolishing prisons are now on the table. And to talk about these issues, we have two incredible guests. Uh, first up, uh, Molly Swain. Molly is a member of Free Lands, Free Peoples, an anti-colonial, indigenous-led penal abolition group based out of Edmonton, Alberta. Molly, welcome to the pod. We also have Rhea Cash Walters on the line. Rhea Cash is a descendant of Jamaican Maroons. She is a community organizer and articling student who really cares about Edmonton and the people in it. Uh, she recently helped draft a letter to city councilors demanding city council divest from policing and invest in community. You can find the link to that letter in our show notes. Rhea Cash, welcome to the show. So, how are y'all doing? Let's uh, let's get a vibe check before we get into the <laughs> into the, the brutal reality of, of of policing on the prairies. Can we do like a weather check in? I really like that one. Yes. What is what can you see out your window now? What does your environment look like? Oh, I meant like a. <laughs> I meant like a wet weather. Do you feel like is it cloudy? Ah, okay, okay. What, <laughs> what, what, so, <laughs> that's an <laughs> okay. So, what weather do you feel like, Rhea Cash? Um, I feel like it's a cloudy day, right? But there's the sun is sort of shining through. But then you know how sometimes the clouds will cover the sun for a bit and then shit gets dark and you're like, oh, is the sun going to come back? I don't know. And then the sun does come out again. You're like, okay, great. And it goes back and forth. I think that's what I am right now. Wow, that's great. Nice. I, I've never done this before. So hopefully uh, I, I sort of understand the the point. I I think I've been feeling, especially for the past, I don't know, like week or five days or however long, um, you know, right before there's a really huge thunderstorm and the air starts to really change and it gets really dark and you get that ozone smell and things start smelling really like fresh and you're like, yeah, that pressure drop happens and you know that it's something big is coming um, and it's going to be really intense and it could get scary and you know there could be damage done all over the place and you're you're kind of worried about people who can't you know maybe make it to shelter but at the same time it's it's like also a very exciting time like you feel that sort of excitement in you that this this big sort of weather change is coming i think that's how i'm feeling mm. Nice. Uh, my parents, my parents live in Southern Alberta and they're very windy down there. They're right next to a giant wind farm actually. And, uh, sometimes it gets so windy down there that you can like literally just like lean into the wind and it'll hold you up. Um, I don't know if that really describes what I'm seeing, but that was the image that popped into my mind when you said this question, right? Cash. <laughs> <sighs> so now that the vibe check is over, uh, we do have to do some context setting and scene setting for the subject today. And, and so my question, whoever wants to lead off, like what is the reality on the ground for black and indigenous people in Edmonton and across Alberta uh, when they encounter police? So, you know, I live in a neighborhood that's predominantly uh, black and indigenous people and new migrants. Um, well, actually, I don't know, maybe not predominantly, but I think there's a, there's a, a high concentration of us here. That's part of the reason I, I love living in this neighborhood. But it's also, I would say, 
um, one of the most policed, if not most policed areas of the city. Um, just it's it's all day, every day. The the big the SUVs, the vans, um, cops on bikes, uh, just just up and down the streets, um, patrolling you know the alleyways, uh, broad daylight for no reason, um, harassing people, you know, ticketing ticketing people, uh, riding their bikes, ticketing people for jaywalking. Um, you know, throwing people into the backs of their cars, uh, booking people for all sorts of stuff, uh, wandering in and out of community businesses, um, you know, uh, and just generally, um, you know, I can't obviously speak for everybody here, but uh, they are, you know, it feels like a hostile occupation, right? The, the helicopters flying overhead all day, every day, um, you know, heavily, sometimes very heavily armed uh, police officers, uh, you know, just, just strolling through the neighborhood um, and the people they target, it's, it's always very clear who it is. It's, it's visibly indigenous and, and black people on these streets. Um, and then, you know, you look at things like uh, the, the, I think it's called the community safety map, I believe, uh, where people can, um, you know, input where they feel unsafe, quote unquote, in the uh, neighborhood. That you could drop a pin. Yes, I remember yeah. this this horror yeah. show. Yeah, yeah. And you and you can just see, you can absolutely see it's a, it's almost like a white supremacy map, right? It's like where, you know, where people are the most afraid, where they feel the most unsafe are are in, you know, our neighborhoods, right? And it's it's a cycle. It feels like this cycle, right? Where it just justifies more and more brutal policing. And, you know, what like who who it is it that we turn to when this happens whereas you know um so it does i think you know speaking from my perspective like it, it really does seem to be sort of this this hostile occupation that we're dealing with day in and day out so full disclosure i'm as we spoke about earlier i'm only recently back in town and was just in ottawa finishing up my degree and I think that folks are feeling overwhelmed. I think folks are feeling frustrated. I think that there's a tension between um, the information that people have about the way that they're allowed to be treated and then the way that they're actually treated. Um, I think most of what I'm hearing from my friends and family across Canada actually um, especially before some of the protests and, and um, other resistance was more widespread, is just random folks outside on the street, um, white people policing and surveilling Black and Indigenous people. So um, even myself, I was out for a walk and was yelled at and told that I need to socially distance. Um, I have friends whose kids have gotten... $700 tickets because um, a white woman was scared that someone was out playing basketball by themselves. Um, it's sort of these same stories over and over and over again that we're hearing. And as Molly mentioned, um, we know the groups of folks who are most likely to be targeted. Uh, we know the folks who are most visible, um, especially in a white supremacist state. So yeah, that's the reality. So, I mean, what's the purpose of the police, right? Like, what, why do we have this whole system? What is it there to do? The, the, the buzzword you hear is community safety, right? The police are the ones who keep us safe. But do police keep Black and Indigenous people safe? I mean, speaking from my own perspective growing up, I didn't, before I even understood what the police were, I knew that we weren't supposed to call them. I didn't, I wasn't told the whole story, but I... I know that from a very young age, if there was an issue, then there was an uncle or auntie that you call, there's a friend that you call, um, but you don't call the police, it's not, it's not an option. And I think as I aged and um, started being exposed to the ways in which um, policing directly affected my community, I realized that they were not necessarily a place of, of solace. Um, and then in my own personal life, as, I, as I've aged, I know that when I have reached out to the police, I've felt frustrated, um, I felt overwhelmed, I felt overlooked, um, and have continued to just utilize the, 
the systems that I've always had, which is reaching out to the people that I care about and that I know. And so um, I know that my own lived experience is a reflection of uh, wider community. We know that uh, Regis, a young woman in Toronto, just lost her life. Um, and her family was really convinced that it was the police that ended her life, that it was state violence that ended her life. Um, and they were called because there was supposed to be a mental health crisis. There was a challenge with her and, and she just needed support. Um, so I, no, I, I wouldn't say that police are, a, are an institution that my community feels safe with, that my friends and family feel safe calling. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. Um, you know, looking historically, policing on these lands has actually, you know, the purpose is to police Indigenous bodies in order to keep white people supposedly safe, right? Um, you know, the history of policing on the prairies starts with the Northwest Mounted Police in the 1800s, which were formed in order to suppress uh, Métis um, and First Nations rebellion or I shouldn't say rebellion, resistance to Canadian uh, incursion onto our lands. And, you know, policing has continued that function ever since, policing and prisons both, right? Um, police act as a way to contain uh, and to discipline Indigenous people to keep us out of certain spaces um, and to keep us trapped in certain spaces as well, like like prisons. Um you know, with the the uh, the uh, reserve pass system that used to be in place, um, you know, where First Nations people couldn't leave reserves without the express permission of the Indian agent, uh, you know, incarceration rates uh, for Indigenous people were extremely low, like one to two percent. And as soon as the pass system got repealed and revoked, um, you start to see incarceration rates for Indigenous people climb and climb and climb, uh, where and they continue to climb. Um, and so, you know, policing and prisons and the, and the whole penal system really are for Indigenous people about maintaining certain levels of um, just like a, certain kinds of whiteness in spaces. Uh, who are who are public spaces for? Who's considered the public, right? And I think both Black and Indigenous people, when it comes to uh, who who gets policed, you know, like, I don't think we're, we're really considered to be the public, right? We aren't, when people talk about public safety or community safety, they're not talking about our safety, in my opinion, they're talking about the safety and comfort of, you know, the, the civil, well-meaning middle-class white person. Um, and that's, you know, that's who Canada is, is thinking about. That's who Alberta's thinking about. That's who Edmonton's thinking about when they can say things like, you know, um, street checks aren't racially motivated, for example, you know, in spite of the overwhelming statistics that say otherwise, um, or, you know, certain certain murders aren't r racially motivated, right? Um, that's, you know, that's whiteness protecting itself. Uh, mm -hmm. And police are sort of the, the armed and licensed wing that does that work. Robin Maynard, um, in her book, Policing Black Lives, um, does a really great overview talking about the history of policing black folks in North America and um, specifically in Canada. And we know that the police were used as um, a tool, tools of the state to track down and um, capture black folks who were previously um, enslaved people and trying to reduce our freedom and ensure that we aren't able to, to thrive and grow. So um, I think that legacy is something that has continued into the present and that we're seeing play itself out every day. Yeah, like it's worth talking about the history uh, and thank you for bringing it up, Molly. Like, yeah, like the reason police on, on the prairies exist was to protect, you know, the private property of white people from indigenous people. Um, and it, it really, when you look at the next 150 years of policing in, on the prairies from that kind of starting point, it, a lot of it starts to make sense. And yeah, and like in 2020, you know, that I don't have to dig very far to find examples of police brutality. Like, um, I have a pretty long list of, of examples I want to get into, but I don't know if, if either you, Ray Cash, or Molly have have like a specific example you want to bring up but like 
Uh, so f please jump in and interrupt me, but uh, I'm on the email list for the ACERT, the Alberta Serious Incident Response Team. And this is the group that investigates essentially serious incidents um, that like essentially when someone dies in the cops care, or when the cops kill someone, or there's someone who is, uh, receives serious injuries, ACERT comes in and investigates. And getting these emails is really depressing because a lot of them are like police acted reasonably in shooting a person or, uh, or it's like stuff that you've never heard of, uh, which is like, here's an example that I literally just pulled from my email this morning. Uh, this happened on May 14th. So a few weeks ago, early in the morning on May 14th, police were dispatched to a 911 call on a possible assault on progress in West Edmonton. Uh, the caller to 911 reported hearing screaming and yelling coming from inside a suite. Uh, after what sounds like a struggle with tasers and batons were used on someone uh, in the hallway, the man who the police were fighting went onto the balcony of the fourth floor suite and, quote, jumped or fell four stories to the ground below independent evidence which would suggest that no officers were on the balcony at the time unquote that man eventually died from his injuries in hospital and like i don't know do either of you remember hearing about this this was literally like three weeks ago that like no. some man had jumped to his death in a confrontation with police no and i mean that's that's really concerning right is you know you sort of the ways in which uh this this kind of violence is invisibilized right um and you know, I don't, I don't know, sort of what what the channels are for making things like that public. But you know, you you wonder for for every incident that you do hear about, how many how many are we not hearing about, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like the EPS or the RCMP are going to be telling us, right? So you know, just that that complete lack of transparency is is really disturbing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like again because no one reported this to the media because it didn't get out the only reason it even got to me was because acert started an investigation and they sent out an email right mm -hmm. um, but i got another one on april 6th uh, calgary police went to a mental health call and again we're going to talk about this later in the pod but police should not be uh, doing mental health calls we should have trained people who know what they're doing uh, handling that people who are in mental distress but uh, after handcuffing this man who was going through some mental health distress and then carrying him into the ambulance uh the medics found that he wasn't breathing and that's what they say in the in the email the medics found that he wasn't breathing so between being cuffed and carried this man stopped breathing uh he was eventually pronounced dead at the hospital um Again, I, I don't remember hearing about this at all. Um, just like another dead person who was interacting with police. We, you don't get any information out of these emails either, just that someone after interacting with the police is now dead. Um, sometimes there's so little detail. There's even less detail in the one I'm going to do next, which is that um, on March 26th, the ACERT was directed to investigate the circumstances surrounding the arrest of a 20-year-old man from the Sucker Creek First Nation who went into medical distress immediately following his arrest. Uh, police responded to a disturbance complaint at a residence on the Sucker Creek First Nation. It was reported that an intoxicated person had damaged property and threatened an occupant of the house. Um, the, the person who the, the police eventually arrested, uh, there was a struggle that occurred and a taser was deployed after being restrained and removed from the residence, the man went into medical distress. That's not explained what medical distress means or what happened to him, but it was so bad that an ambulance had to attend the scene and the man was transported to a nearby hospital. He eventually took an air ambulance to another hospital in another city. Again, no details on which city where this is, uh, where he remains in stable condition as and is expected to make a full recovery. I mean, I think that the, the dude uh, who was the subject of the medical distress should probably make a... Uh, should probably be making that call <laughs> rather than ACERT. But again, like just no details on what's happened, just medical distress. Uh, some An indigenous man was arrested and he was hurt so bad that the, the air ambulance had to take him to a hospital in another city. Mm. Like, Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting too, you know, and, and it's, you know, one of the, the things that I find so, you know, in spite of, of, just the the horrors that have sort of uh, engendered this, like the response and the fact that people are becoming more interested in defunding the police and are questioning our reliance on and the, the sort of normative allegiance um, that a lot of people have to the police is, uh, you know, we need to start demanding more detail in this. We need to start demanding more detail from the officers when they're making the reporting. We need to start demanding more transparency. Um, 
you know, and, and I say this like with, with the primary goal needs to be obviously defunding and dismantling policing. Um, but there, we do sort of, we're taught to assume that whatever response the police make to whatever the situation is, they must have had a justified reason for it, right? We're supposed to rely on the police and we're supposed to trust that whatever it is that they're doing, you know, they're doing, you know, with the best of intentions and with all this training behind them and, you know, as as just these upstanding keepers of the law or whatever it is, right? But, you know, when you start to do sort of these these close readings of these stories and you start to look at what the trends are, you know, the the situation is is much darker. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in the United States, that's, that's, I think, becoming extremely obvious, you know, with the cops just letting all of these white supremacist militias, you know, just run around, um, you know, like basically high-fiving them. Uh, but it's, you know, I think it's equally true up here. And, and you know, we can't have that Canadian exceptionalism anymore when, we, when we're talking and thinking about the police. Yeah, I think, you know, speaking of institutions that are um, dehumanizing, but also sort of a mystery. Um, I know that, Molly, you mentioned some of our prisons, and we know that uh, at least two people have died now in Canadian uh, federal prisons because of COVID-19. And it was sort of uh, this passive um, allowance of this death. We knew that, and I have a couple of friends who are inside who feel like, you know, like nobody cares about me. Like they, they, they don't care about my life. They don't care about my black life. You know, they're not even wearing masks. And so there's, there's this active, um, you know, graphic and scary way in which um, agents of the state can inflict harm on black and brown communities and other otherwise marginalized communities. And then there is sort of covert, um, passive, quote unquote, ways in which other institutions like the prison system um, invalidates, invisibilizes, and also ends the lives of the people that we love. This one just came out the other day. Um, The incident itself is from 2018, but video of it just uh, surfaced on Instagram and it, it, uh, story, that popped up in the Edmonton Journal from a reporter who tracked down the details of this case. But yes, video from 2018 surfaced uh, of a black man in Edmonton being struck in the head and then restrained in a, in a manner very similar to George Floyd with the cops essentially like leg and shin and the entire force of his body on his neck and throat. Um, you know, this is, you get into the details of this case and like the casual cruelty of the cops uh, that they dish out with no re- repercussions just becomes extremely clear. Um, the man's name was uh, Jean-Claude Rucundo, and all that he was guilty of doing was uh, helping out his girlfriend at the time who had been involved in a car accident. Um, I just have a quick excerpt from the story. Uh, Rucundo, a construction worker and father of five, originally from Burundi, rushed to the accident near 121st Street and Yellowhead Trail after receiving a call from his partner. He and a friend arrived on scene where they were greeted by two helpful officers. Rucundo's partner was upset, and he helped with insurance information and paperwork while she calmed down. Eventually, two other officers arrived. Rakundo says he was on the phone with the insurance company when one of the newly arrived officers, who appeared to be upset, asked whether he was involved in the crash. Rakundo said one of the officers then told him he had to leave the scene, saying he would be arrested otherwise. Rakundo said he explained he was helping his partner and assisting the other officers. When the officer insisted, Rakundo said he relented and began to walk away. As he was leaving, however, Rakundo said one of the officers, who was wearing a reflective vest in the video, grabbed his arm and pulled him to the ground. The 14-second clip clip taken by Rakundo's friend shows part of the arrest. It shows Rakundo prone on the grass with two officers on top of him. His hands are behind his back. Two bystanders watch nearby. About two seconds in, the officer controlling the top half of Rakundo's body brings his right shin across the side of Rakundo's head. One of the officers says, stop resisting or you will get fucking tasered. The officer leaves his shin in place for the remainder of the video. That's the end of the quote from the story. Um, Rukunda was eventually uh, was charged with obstructing and resisting police arrest, which is just a police favorite when um, they uh, they beat the shit out of you. Totally. But but those charges were eventually dropped. Um, the police professional standards branch conducted a fulsome investigation, which included interviews with witnesses and the officers. Uh, Rukundo, however, was not interviewed. Uh, the police spokeswoman attached to this said one of the arrests said one of the officers was disciplined for the profanity used during the arrest the details of that case like again i don't know how you can read them and not 
be angry, right? It's And so how do we take that anger and kind of, you know, and the ongoing horror that is modern policing and move on to the solutions? How do we build a better system that not only doesn't hurt Black and Indigenous people, but creates a system where we all thrive? And um, there's a lot of options. There's a lot of ways we could go here. We could talk about defunding police, improving police oversight, carding, you know, land back indigenous sovereignty. The defunding stuff is an easy place to begin, right? I think there is real momentum around this idea of defunding uh, the cops. And like, I think I think brutal austerity is something that Albertans are very familiar with, uh, you know, thanks to years and years of conservative governments. Um, but like brutal austerity uh, can be good when we apply that idea to cops. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know that um, you know one of the demands that people have been making the states around the George Floyd, George Floyd protest is defunding police. It is more and more people are saying it. More and more people are talking about it. Let's let's have the defunding police conversation. And if we are going to have that conversation, let's know what we spend on it first. Um, this is research that we just did. We we just released um, a story on the police budgets of Edmonton and Calgary. But when you add up the police budgets of Edmonton and Calgary together. They, they spend around, or they spend more than $750 million a year on policing in Alberta's two biggest cities. Um, does that dollar figure make sense, surprise you? I mean, it's huge. I mean, when you get into these large numbers, it's like incomprehensible, but like, yeah, seven hundred three quarters of a billion dollars a year on policing in Alberta, just on the, just in the two big cities. I, I wish I could say that that I was surprised, but I'm really not. I mean, you know, I mentioned that police helicopter that's constantly flying over over my part of town, and you know, how many thousands of a do- of dollars does it take to even just start one of those up, right? Much less run it for hours a day, which they do. Um, you know, part of part of the way that this government has been running the show, and and previous governments um, for just about as long as I can remember, uh, is you know part of the way that you get austerity measures passed and you don't have people, um, you know, taking to the streets for teachers and for healthcare workers and, uh, you know, other um, folks who are experiencing the brunt of this is, you know, you create these environments of fear. And one of the ways that you do that is by filling the city with cops and then acting like the reason that you're doing that is because these cops are needed. Right. And I think, you know, you see, you've seen it with with COVID nineteen, right? Is is they have nothing to do, and so they need to justify, you know, continuing to to have jobs and to be paid their massive, like, incredibly bloated salaries, and so you know, like, you have you have half a dozen armed, like, ar- cops armed to the teeth, you know, evicting a couple of like young indigenous squatters from from a, a unoccupied house, or well, I mean, they were occupying it, right? Um, or, you know, you have, you know, they just like blow everything even more out of proportion, right? It's like you create these environments of fear and then you create a solution for a problem that you caused. And I think, you know, that's part of the reason why we have these just absolute massive budgets, right? And and that sort of those environments of fear are, are not just around sort of what's happening in the city, but then, of course, with you know, indigenous land protector actions, um, you know, anti-tar sands, anti-pipeline organizing, all of that, right, is, is you, you, you create these narratives where, where people fighting for their lives and well-being is a threat. And then the cops just slide right in there and get more and more and more money to hire more cops to get more of their freakish dystopian toys that they then use on us, right? It's easy to justify a astronomical police budget when um, you framed certain folks as unsafe and you have positioned police as the only solution. So I think that like something that makes me feel excited because I think when I when I'm focusing on um, the brutality and the violence and um, just my loved ones being treated like garbage it can make me feel like there's nothing I can do it can make me feel overwhelmed especially as someone who has been doing the work for like about a decade now and and you know Edmonton police um, was just just increased funding by like 75 million dollars and EPS asked for 
87 million, right? And there were folks who interjected and said, you know, I know Andrew Knack uh, confronted some other folks, other city councilors and said, okay, you know, maybe we don't have to increase their budget by 25%. Maybe, you know, we could increase it just by 10%. And he faced like incredible backlash from um, all members of city council, um, aside from about three. And I think if we talk about transformative justice, it makes it easier to understand um, what a world could look like without policing. Um, and so for folks who maybe don't know about what transformative justice is, it's basically a practice of investing in other people's safety, investing in other people's success, um, and having people around you who have the tools and have the skills um, to intervene in potentially uh, violent confrontations, um, interpersonal challenges that we're bound to have without necessarily needing to engage the police, um, engage systems of surveillance, um, and and put ourselves in danger. Yeah, I mean, that's the next question is like, okay, we defund the police, then, then what do those, what do we do? How do we take care of each other, right? And thinking about that is actually really fun. And um, but but I still think that, that there's a couple points worth talking about it when it comes to these budgets, right? Like budgets are ultimately moral documents. They demonstrate the priorities of a government or an organization far better than any fucking speech, right? And if some politician says he really cares about the homeless, um, uh, fucking prove it. Because right now the budget for addressing homelessness in Edmonton is fucking nothing. And, and, and instead, $356 million a year single largest line item in the budget goes to policing, right? Like when you combine what the cities spend, both Edmonton and Calgary, when you combine their affordable housing, homelessness, uh, and social programs budgets, and then you compare that to what they spend on policing, they spend more than nine times on policing than the, what they spend on housing, on housing the homeless and social programs. Like they're, that's, it's like, it's, it can't be more clear, right? Like the priorities of our city governments are police is policing it's the single largest line item it makes me think of the ice district it makes me think of um the fact that there was folks who were living downtown who had affordable housing and the city decided to prioritize like this giant arena space over um people having a safe place to live and then i mean as an insult to that injury just like branded it this strange corporate like ice district thing that didn't even you know even the yuppies in the community even the young professionals were like oh that doesn't have anything to do with me i'm just so disconnected from the needs that folks have on the ground um, and i know that a number of activists and and people in community who really care were saying okay so you're going to displace all of these folks what are you going to do for them how are you going to support them um, and i know that uh few of my friends who were displaced, nothing was done for them. They, they had nowhere to go. They, um, some of them had to uh, live in really close quarters just to make it day by day. So I think when we look at what people say and then we look at people what people do, we're going to have to pay a lot more attention to um, the actions that folk ta folks take. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the other thing that we've been seeing um, you know, more and more, and you, you sort of mentioned the SROs, the school resource officers, is that we're seeing the sort of, like, the almost the policification of every aspect of public space and every aspect of our lives, right? You go into, you know, middle schools, and there are armed police officers who are literally organizing stings against the students, you know, dragging them in, trying to get them to snitch on each other, you know, full view of a gun, not letting them talk to their parents, uh, you know, ticketing them, you know, as Raycash mentioned, with these huge fines, um, you know, you walk into the volunteer run community cafe on Alberta Avenue, and you're gonna sit down with a bunch of cops. Um, and, you know, and, and community leagues, which, you know, and at least my part of town are sort of this nest of racism, uh, you know, are putting up these these moratoria on having more public housing in the neighborhoods, uh, not letting more public housing be developed, but bringing in and welcoming more cops, getting the business associations involved to to surveil and criminalize the neighborhood inhabitants. 
right? And so, and, you know, and then of course, street checks, like the, the carding, you can't even walk down the street, right? And and we're, you know, up in, like, we're, I'm hoping that, you know, this is the start of a real sea change here. But, you know, this, this sort of this creeping fascism that we've all been dealing with for so long, right? This, you know, you, you raise the police budget, and you slash the public housing housing budget, you do that again and again, right? You raise the police budget, and the province, like, fires thousands of teachers right like you know the trends are there right right in front of us um and you know it's it's fabulous to see people fighting back and i think you know when uh duncan you were talking about sort of how exciting it is to think about alternatives to policing one of the nice things about alternatives to policing is you know the institution of policing as it exists now is is relatively new and the extent of the influence that police and policing has over our lives right now is is very new. And so the, you know, the tools, the the examples, the the case studies, the programs, the types of relationships that we want to have with each other. Anyway, all those examples are there. We just need to we just need to go and reach for them and, and take them up. And, you know, the like you said, right? Like we defund the police, that's you know just hundreds of millions of dollars that we can reinvest into our communities. Mm-hmm. And Rakesh, yeah, just, I know you, oh. you're, I know you're doing some organizing around this issue. Um, you've got a, can you tell us about that and like what you're asking, you know, city council in Edmonton to do? Sure. Yeah. So um, there's a, an original letter that came out of Toronto that pulled from, um, organizing in the states and ideas about how we can divest from policing without contributing to uh, additional funding of the police because I know that sometimes we do this whole reform versus abolishing and there's that tension there because folks continue to I guess have hope that we can change the system um, but anyways the letter that we decided to draft was a reflection of the Toronto letter and it requests, asks, demands that our city councillors find, um, not even find ways actually, just defund and divest from police and transfer those funds into uh, community organizations that we already know exist and we already know are doing incredible work. So um, as you mentioned, I'm hoping that you guys can link to the letter in the show notes. It's on the BLMYG website and it's a super straightforward tool that you can use to um, just send a message to your local city councilor by putting in your postal code. Um, And I really encourage people to read the letter first. I think sometimes when I looked at um, the numbers, I don't know what the numbers are at right now, but you know, within a few minutes, there's like 400 letters sent off and um, a number of us, took a lot of time to draft that letter and you know folks like Molly took time to edit the letter and and really add their thoughts and there's a lot of education there too so um, I encourage people to take the time and get that learning and then yes take the action hit the button do the thing in addition yeah and then and then go from there like that is a that is the first step is to kind of one like let your elected representatives know that you know that, that policing is bullshit and that needs less money but then two, it's like bring the, the act of doing that, you know, brings people together. Right. And, and now, you know, your group has a list of people who have clearly, you know, raised their hand and said, I am, you know, interested in learning more and working towards, you know, fixing this. Um, yeah. I mean, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Um, yeah. I think the, the challenge is that um, folks are ignited right now and folks are wanting to do good work and make a difference and feel like they're contributing to positive change. Um, but we do have to remember that change takes a long time, takes a lot of effort and community work, uh, isn't super smooth. It's not like happy and chill all the time. And, uh, there's challenging conversations that we have to have with one another and navigate with one another. And I really do hope that the people who are on fire right now or are long-term committed to um, the projects like this. Like for example, um, after we send this letter to our city councilors, we also are going to have to follow up with them in person. We're also going to have to uh, show up when the when city council is having debates and offer our thoughts um, and continue pushing for uh, where and in what quantities city council does invest that 
um, money and community and make sure that they continue investing that money. So yeah, it's, it's a long game. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good point. I think, you know, I think that's the real danger, right? Is that, you know, people just, they, they sign the letter, they send it off. Uh, they don't take the time. I mean, you know, there's, there's an incredible resource list um, and like many resource lists at this point being spread around. Um, and for a lot of people, you know, this idea of ACAB or this idea of defunding the police or that maybe police aren't, you know, the people we should be trusting to resolve all conflicts, right? This is a new idea for a lot of folks. And it's amazing. It's amazing that people are taking up this idea, but it requires so much more work than just the riding this this wave right now and it's it's a great wave and you know I'm, I'm surfing hard I'm loving it um <laughs> like this is this is the time to 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 really take a deep dive here um and it's it's not only just how you know all the things that Ray Cash said you know like how do we follow up with our city councilors how do we talk to you know the the folks in the school board, uh, the principals, the vice principals, getting getting schools to defund from SROs, um, you know, continuing to fight against carding. But it's also about, you know, how do we reorient our own interpersonal relationships to yeah. be non-punitive? Like, how do we how do we stop relying on the police in our own lives in, in various ways? How do we stop if we see the police as a source of safety? How do you understand that that's not true? Right. How do you how do you reorient your own worldview to start living in ways that don't require the police right and these are those longer yeah. conversations that's that grind right that's that heart that you know those hard talks that you have you know staying up late at night you know reading writing um being with your community being with your family uh in order to step into this future with no police mm -hmm. uh and i think you know, that's, that's sort of that, you know, it's exciting. All of it is so exciting, but it's also, you know, it is, it's going to be a slog and we're going to do it with each other and it's going to be, it's going to be good. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot more than just being horrified. at It's what's happening and what's been happening. Yeah, I mean, if social change was easy, we'd be living in a way better world right now. But let's <laughs> let's let's move on to the fun stuff. So, if we're getting rid of cops, we're defunding cops, we're dismantling cops. If cops don't exist anymore, um, what comes in their place? You know, if cops aren't responding to mental health emergencies, who is responding to mental health emergencies? Do we create a new class of job, like a mental health first responder or something? Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, we have so many options and so many examples. I I think that one of the faults of, uh, I mean, North America and the way that we've set up our society is that we kind of, we think macro before we think micro. So I think I would, I would start with the micro and start with like the fights that we have with our friends and our family and think about how we resolve those issues. And do we empathize with folks, try to see things from their perspective, put ourselves in their shoes. Um, one thing that uh, Miriam Kaba talks about is if there's someone in community who's done something wrong, right, and we want to help facilitate accountability, do you push them out of community? Do you push them away? Or do you hold them closer so that you can actually be there for when maybe they're about to do that thing that they said they weren't going to do that was really harmful? And you can check in and say, hey, how's it going? How, how are you managing your mental health? Are you fed? Are you housed? Um, I think we have to ask the, those questions about the, the ones we love because I think uh, our society has made it really easy to just look out for you know me and maybe my partner and maybe my kid and maybe I'll check in on my mom once in a while. Um, when in reality, if we want to build this world where we care about each other and it's based on compassion, um, then we have to opt into each other's pain. We have to opt into each other's issues. Um, we have to actually be there and we have to reorganize the way that we prioritize our lives. Wow. Yes to all of that. Oh yeah. Um, just to, just to add uh, one, one thing to that. Um, I think concomitantly we need to start examining the ways in which we try to impose certain types of social normativity on people. And I mean, it's not just in terms of mental health, uh, but ableism generally. Um, and, you know, also obviously white supremacy, classism, 
you know, it's uh, patriarchy, cis heteropatriarchy, all of those things, right? There, there are certain ways of being that are considered acceptable, right? Sort of the the civil modes of behavior, the normative ways of of speaking and acting in public. And I think, you know, one of the things that we really need to do is to expand our conception of what is okay to do and how it's okay to behave in public space. Because a lot of the time, what I see is people getting authorities involved for people who are actually doing fine and they're not really bothering anybody but they're just acting kind of strange or they're having a rough time but they're not hurting themselves they're not hurting anybody else and then you bring in you know cops whether it's you know or peace officers or transit cops or security guards or whatever it is and they escalate the situation and they deteriorate the situation and so how is it that we make more space for one another to just be who we are and to have those moments that, you know, everybody has those moments where, you know, they're just, they're having a hard, they're having a rough time, right? Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, you're, whatever it may be, right? Like, how, how do we create space for one another to just be, you know, if, if you're, if you don't need intervention, Mm-hmm. right or if, if somebody doesn't need intervention like how do we have that like let's let's just let that person be in mind our own friggin business right mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. that that sentiment um that ableism that's what killed abdi rahman abdi um he was he was hanging out he was in public he was doing things that made people feel uncomfortable but he wasn't hurting anyone right um and because folks called the police and people who were strangers to him escalated the situation he died so what makes more sense to me is like okay if i'm going through something maybe i'm in public and i'm having a hard time why would you call a stranger to help me why wouldn't you call my mother why wouldn't you call my uncle or my cousin why wouldn't you call someone who is familiar to me who can help calm me down um, who can intervene in a way that's like reasonable and with care and who's also probably familiar with another time that maybe I was having a hard time. Like that makes so much more sense to me than us asking strangers who, you know, on top of that don't even have the training to deal with folks who are dealing with mental health crises um, to escalate the situation and cause additional violence. I know you said it a micro versus macro, but I, I really do want to come back to the larger question of like, you know, the jobs like if we're going to defund cops what are the jobs that replace them and there are almost 70,000 cops in Canada right now um you know and if cops shouldn't be responding to mental health emergencies or doing social work or directing traffic or investigating murders or doing any of the other numerous things cops do which they don't have to be doing um I I really think that it's an opportunity for like organized labor to actually like this is this is the good raid this this is good raiding and it's a long term project much like anything uh the, all the stuff that we're talking about too like the cops uh, and the police the infrastructure around them the PR infrastructure they have the like the way white majority society views them they're incredibly powerful and they have this massive PR machine but I, I really think it's I think it's an opportunity for organized labor to actually grow their movement and to have more dues paying members is um, to have like, you know, the, the, the jobs that I'm talking about, like people doing social work or mental health first responders or directing traffic or whatever. Uh, those are all good government union jobs. And I think, you know, that's a That's a thing that a long term kind of narrative push within the labor movement that that I'm pushing. I know you've got bit of experience in the labor movement, Rhea Cash, and I raise, I talk to labor folks all the time and raise money from them for various projects. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's super cool. Um, I recently shared something on Twitter and it was just like at the end of it, sharing some um, images from Luna, uh, an artist named Luna Sinite. And one of the examples um, these inf- infographics provided was like, an example of someone who's driving and their brakes aren't working and, you know, instead of the cops coming up and giving them a ticket and making them feel bad about themselves and then actually their light still is broken and nothing has been solved. Um, She brings up an example of a city employee signals for you to pull over and asks whether or not they can replace your headlight. And so they're just, they do it right there. And then the person drives off and then they have a light now 
right? So like, yeah, that's a great job. This is someone who um, has great interpersonal skills, someone who knows their way around cars. And if that job was additionally unionized um, and secure, like that's that's dope. That's that's the kind of world we're we're trying to imagine. So uh, I love that idea. I'm I'm on board. Yeah, I think too now is is actually an excellent time for for organized labor to to really start mobilizing towards something like this. In part because, you know, you've got um, a massively increasing already huge police budget. And we're in the middle of an economic recession, a massive economic recession. Um, and I'm thinking too specifically about the oil patch. So you've got all of these, you know, often uh, pretty young white men, um, you know, and, and the oil patch is a place that is just an absolute hotbed of misogyny and racism, uh, you know, ableism and all of that, who now are out of work and, to be a cop, you get what, like six months of training and you start with, you know, 67 grand a year, right? Like we need to be like funneling these guys into other types of work, right? And we need to be funneling, you know, the kind, like just, you know, and then I don't want to, all cops are bastards. So we need to be funneling these bastards into other types of work. And, you know, while I think it, it would be great if we could make every cop a good, competent, non-biased mental health professional um you know i'm gonna be honest like a lot of these people probably shouldn't be working with the public uh but there are they other jobs they shouldn't have guns they shouldn't have guns and they shouldn't be in any position of power over anyone else yeah yeah exactly um but there you know that doesn't mean that there aren't jobs out there right and so i think it's it's not just about you know obviously defunding the police putting that money and putting some of that people power into other more generative community focused efforts 100% but i think we also need to look at sort of the larger picture and, and think about too like you know diversifying the economy um for example how do we how do we build you know like a more diversified energy sector for example or how do we uh build um you know more types of uh, infrastructure and and put more like create more jobs you know there right because um, I think you know and defunding the police and, and getting people into to new jobs is is great but you know from everything that I've seen of about police and policing like you're almost gonna have to do some like conditioning like break down some conditioning right because it, cops are trained to see black and indigenous people as enemies right like I'll, I'll never forget I think it was saskatoon or thunder bay where they were using the image of an indigenous woman for target practice like the cops were you know and and i was thinking about that uh when i heard that the edmonton police are asking for a third shooting range right and so you know part of part of the healing that's going to be happening is also going to be dismantling the white supremacist thinking that underlies how police do their jobs as individuals um and i think that's very very doable uh and, you know, for, for folks who are, are very set in their ways, uh, I think there are ways of rendering them uh, or putting them in places where they, they can't do that kind of harm that they currently can with the power that they have. Yeah, there's so, so much to talk about when it comes to this. And like, there are a whole bunch of other things that I wanted to talk about. I think you two might have to come back for a part two or a part three, because there's a whole mm -hmm. bunch of stuff we're going to, we're leaving on the cutting room floor here, or at least the cutting room floor in my notes. And I do think we need to continue this conversation. So why don't we, I think we're going to have to, to wrap it up there, but is there any kind of like final thought or like final thing you want people to consider before we get into um, kind of the calls to action at the end? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm sure that your listeners are super uh, well-learned and, and, and are well-versed with these issues, but... Yes, they I smell good too, and they're very good looking, yeah. <laughs> but I know just as a Black woman who cares and has been a little visible in community, I'm getting a lot of messages from people saying like, what should I do? How do I learn? How do I do better? And all that stuff. And I think that's super cool. And I'm glad that, you know, your interest is piqued, but um, I just like to encourage some self-learning. I'd like to encourage brainstorming um, helpful Google terms. I'd like to encourage um, listening to podcasts like this one and other ones that 
have already produced a lot of helpful information um, instead of kind of burdening other folks of color who are probably either trying to heal, eat, um, or do the work. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would also like to add um, that if you're you're interested in either you're you're already in the struggle or you're you're interested in getting into the struggle, um, let's fight to win. I think that you know with with everything that's been going on in Alberta in the last several years, it's been feeling. You know, I know I've been feeling really demobilized for a while, and I know a lot of other people have. Um, but let's not forget that if we want to win, we need to fight like we can, and we need to plan, and we need to strategize, and we need to use tactics that ensure that we can. Um, mm-hmm. And so whether the struggle is is defunding the police um, or, you know, any any of sorry I shouldn't say defunding the police is so intimately connected I think with so many other things um you know let's let's fight to win let's fight to create the kind of world where everybody can actually live and thrive together Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. agreed let's Let's do it Mm Okay. Well, thank you so much, Molly and Rakesh, for being on the show. And again, I I am extending this invitation. Hopefully you're free next week. Um, So uh, now is the time. Yeah. Calls to action. I know Rakesh, you've got uh, the letter tool. Can you give one more, one last plug for that? Sure. Yeah. It's super easy. It takes two minutes, maybe five minutes. If you take a minute to read it, which would be awesome. Um, You just log on to the link that's on the show notes and you'll, have the opportunity to raise your voice and let city councilors know that folks in, in Edmonton really care about protecting Black and Indigenous and other racialized and marginalized lives. Um, and the way to do that is by divesting from police and investing in community. Awesome. And Molly, we didn't even get a chance to talk about prison abolition or free people's freelance, um, freelance free people, sorry. Uh, give a very, could you give a plug for that, the work that you're doing, as well as I think a fundraiser that you've got going on right now? Uh, yeah. So Freelance Free Peoples is a new anti-colonial abolition group on the prairies. Uh, so um, we're, we're sort of just getting started. Uh, we want to do a lot of public education about prairie prison abolition. Um, we also, uh, since the uh, sort of pandemic uh, really got ramped up, uh, we've been uh, running a fundraiser that provides $250 stipends to people who are currently in prison or who have recently been released. Uh, you can find that. I believe that's going to be linked in the show notes as well. Or you can Google Prairie Province Prisoner Support Fund. And that is open to anybody on the prairies uh, who is currently incarcerated or recently released or the family or support people of people who are incarcerated. Awesome. Yes. Go uh, give them money. It's very, very good group doing very good things. Um, and thank you uh, to our guests. Incredible guests, incredible conversation. I do want to continue this. I don't think this issue is going away. And, uh, and if you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing more podcasts like this, uh, there are a few things you can do to help us out. Uh, the easiest thing to do is to just share it with your friends, whether that's you know via email or text or through your social media channels or putting it on a tape and sending a tape in the mail to your friend. I don't care how you do it. But, uh, but the, you know, word of mouth is the best way to get the word out on stuff like this. Um, the other big way that you can help us out is you can give us money. Again, uh, we have a, uh, this little independent media project is going with the help of around 250 people who regularly give us money every month. Uh, if you want to do that, if you have the ability to do that, you can go to the, the progressreport.ca slash patrons. You can put in your credit card, contribute five, 10, $15 a month. Uh, it really goes a long way and we really do appreciate it. If you have any notes or thoughts or comments that you think I need to hear, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me on email by uh, Duncan K at progressalberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Family Communist for the amazing theme. Thank you so much to our guests, Rakesh Walters and Molly Swain. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Did you know that Progress Alberta is part of a national community of leftist podcasts on the Ricochet Podcast Network? You can find the Alberta Advantage, 49th Parahel, Kino Lefter, Well Reds, 
the progress report, Leafy Sales, Out of Left Field, and Unpacking the News, as well as a bunch of other awesome podcasts at Ricochet Media or wherever you download your podcasts.